For May 27th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 569. John Wick, unlike Jon Snow, knows to pet his dog. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet, a sort of high table with our own rules and customs, and everything that we do is done under the table. Which, like, uh, I don't know. It's it, look. Um, I'm I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hi, Matt. I'm under the table and dreaming. That's what I am. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hi, Matt. I'm, I'm dancing on the table like the uh, like Coyote Ugly style. Let's go with that. Yeah. We're we're uh, we were we were delayed. Uh, uh, you know, we were delayed in talking about a uh, badly traumatized. Uh, you know, a specialist in violence who lays waste to an entire city. Um, by which I mean, of course, John Wick. Uh, we were delayed by talking about Game of Thrones last week, but uh, have no fear. It's time to get back into John Wick. You didn't really think that we had forgotten uh, John Wick. Chapter 3, Parabellum. Parabellum. Parabellum, yeah. Now, uh, parabolas. <laughs> <laughs> literally, uh, parabellum, right? It should be two words, um, and uh, and it should be pronounced like Latin, which is what it is. If you want peace, you must parabellum, prepare for war, and that's um, you know, uh, it's a uh, well, it's kind of a confounding title because it refers to something. Uh, said at the beginning of the third act of the movie. And so it refers to about three or four seconds of, of screen time. But, but uh, I digress. Let's, let's jump in and talk about John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. Let's, let's, are, you, are, are you prepared for war, gentlemen? Where, <laughs> where should we begin, Pete, in our conversation about John Wick? Sure, sure. Oh, and by the way, you should, they should, we should consider briefly the ambiguity presented by parabellum versus para the prefix, meaning kind of adjacent to or related to. So this is related to a war, also a preparation to a war. Uh, what I'm saying is that it is an overthought title, which we should appreciate. Uh, but there's so much to talk about, we should move on. Here's the question that starts the conversation for me. And it's a question that my wife posed to me because she thought it was an interesting question and a difficult one. So, of course, spoilers for John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum and for the first two John Wick movies. Uh, if you haven't seen the John Wick movies, here's the super, super short version of it, right? Which you, which you need to know to set up this question. John Wick, it played by Keanu Reeves, at some point before the events of the movie was the the boogeyman, you know, who or the guy who kills the boogeyman, the worst of the worst of this uh, underground brotherhood, so to speak, of assassins who have their own society, their own currency, their own agreements. And uh, he was a super virtuoso at killing people who is enlisted to kill only the uh, most sort of terrible, terrible of targets. And he has gone into retirement at the beginning of the first movie, but his wife has contracted a terminal illness. And so his retirement has proven to be one of sadness and grief rather than one of relaxation. And when his wife dies, 
she leaves sort of a, a delivery to be made later, sort of an early postmate, I think is what it is, uh, that, that at a certain date in the future, a puppy is to be delivered to his apartment or to his home, and the puppy is supposed to be his companion in the absence of his wife. And the, the kickoff to the first John Wick movie, and perhaps it's appropriate that John Wick starts when Game of Thrones ends, is that Theon Greyjoy himself, uh, in, in a sort of petty act of spite, steals John Wick's car and kills his beautiful, adorable dog, which sets John Wick out of retirement and into an unstoppable just cavalcade of murder, which he he's really he's really just a just a dynamo, just like an unstoppable force who just moves from person to person to person. But with a lot of grace and mathematical geometrical complexity and a lot of vir- you know virtuosity, as I've mentioned, just just this incredible action movie force that mows through whatever sorts of gangsters or assa- other assassins or other sorts of obstacles are in his way to gain vengeance for the death of his dog. And so here's the question, right? Because in John Wick 1, that's sort of what happens. And then John Wick 2, we get introduced in sort of the broader world. Okay, who's in charge of the assassin world? Uh, John Wick's got to go to Europe. The common is in it. And it's like, oh, there's other assassins. We are, we're taken outside of the narrow story of John Wick's dog vengeance, which really is among the most sympathetic things about him, if not the single most sympathetic thing about John Wick, which is that unlike Jon Snow, he knows to pet his dog. And misses him when he's gone, right? And so John Wick, in this movie, he has a dog. He has a new dog, and he's had a new dog for a while. Nobody is threatening the dog. The dog is fine. Uh, he has murdered a whole lot of people and continues to murder a whole lot of people, many of whom, you know, quote unquote, deserve it. But still, like he does get involved in sort of politics with this organization. He kills a bunch of people who don't really deserve it to the same degree that Theon Greyjoy deserves it. And this conflict is kind of spiraled out of control, which is what is happening in Parabellum. The whole society is being kind of destabilized. And the question that my wife had is, you know, given all of this that's changed about John Wick personally, why do people still root for him? And that is the question that I'd like to pose to you guys. I mean, I have my own ideas, but I want to hear what you have to say about this. Why would you root for John Wick in John Wick 3, Parabolas? He he looks really good in a black suit and a skinny tie, <laughs> you know? Like, it's just extraordinarily cinematic. It's so graphic, that outfit and the way they shoot him against the, you know, a lot of lighted backgrounds in this movie, a lot of changing colors. He just cuts such a dashing figure, you know? Are you being you're being sincere about that? No, no. I mean, I yes, I am. I think that's. I mean, I think that's part of it. Like, I you know, he's the hero because he's the best looking one in the 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 film. Mm-hmm. He's the one who shot the best, right? Like everyone else is some kind of grotesque, and uh, even even the the quote unquote good characters, with the exception maybe of the concierge um, character at the Continental. But like he is, uh, you know, he's sort of magnificent to look at, and that's that's a. Uh, uh, not nothing in a movie you know my answer my answer is kind of related which is has to do with the metacasting of keanu reeves um particular for people of our generation keanu is inexorably tied to the matrix franchise he was is and shall always be the one um and i to expand that a little bit you know he was such a master of kinetic violence in that movie that we just want to see more of that and, and that's what that's one of the big things that the John Wick movies deliver is intense Keanu Reeves combat action, the likes of which we haven't seen since The Matrix. Um, and that's that to me is a huge part of it. We want to see Keanu kick a whole bunch of ass. 
I mean, that's that's pretty. That I mean, the, all the other story machinations and the revenge and um, how he broke the big rule and things like that. It's it's all window dressing and an excuse and and just kind of a, a light facade like, for, for the punching a, killing. It's also he he. I think like it, to answer a little more seriously, I think he's always responsive. You know what I mean? He he never does any of it with malice. You know, and it's always if if. Uh, if a truce could be reached, he would gladly just stop, you know, uh, killing people, cutting a, a, you know, bloody swath through this organization called the High Table. He, he would stop. But I guess I had, um, I think I see what Sarah was getting at by asking you that, uh, because I think this movie doesn't have a good villain. But let's um let's table that because uh i think we're going to talk a lot about uh iron chef america and let's uh <laughs> let's go to let's go to what you think pete oh yeah sure so i guess i would add to what you guys said because i agree right is that john wick looks great john wick is keanu i would also add that john wick has some of the characteristics of a face character that you would cheer for in professional wrestling in that he is skilled and hardworking as opposed to naturally gifted and cheats that he, he, even though he does have a sort of force of force of nature aspect to him and seems to have kind of particularly preternatural stamina, he doesn't win just because he's the strongest or the best shot. He wins because he has this tremendous amount of knowledge and skill and practice in doing all sorts of things. And that in conventional wisdom is something that people cheer for. Uh, in, in guess modern, at least in modern America, I don't know about other places whether their professional wrestling has different norms, uh, but also yeah, and that he's not, you know, if he's up against somebody who who is sort of underhanded, right, doesn't respect the rules as much as he does, then uh, you would boo the person who doesn't respect the rules, and you would cheer the person who does respect the rules, even if in this case that's been blown out to the point of absurdity, wherein respecting the rules does involve riding sideways on a horse, you know, down the main street in the Bronx in New York and just shooting people in the head, right? like this is uh, off of their motorcycles. So I guess that's another aspect of it, and another a further one would be that. Um, that Keanu, um, that we watch him suffer, that we watch John Wick in pain a lot. That in, in this entire movie, John, John Wick is not 100% at any point in this movie. He is bleeding from at least one place from the be- its beginning to its end. And his sort of hobble, which, ha- which is a really cool feat of acting, I think, a sort of creative character-building gesture, because Keanu Reeves' John Wick injured hobble is sort of a combination of the sort of lumbering off to death of a wounded beast, but also the sort of approach of a of a of a somewhat hesitant but terribly dangerous predator. Like there's a sense that at any point during his little hobbling that he could pounce. It's a very cool neutral position. His sort of hands extended almost like claws from his sort of waist, right? It's sort of the way that he would go. And it's he could either grab his grab his gun, he could grab you. And yeah, he can't go fast when he's doing this, but he's always ready. And there's just something about the kind of it's very similar in certain ways to the gesture of like the John McClane I have glass on my feet walk <laughs> is uh, in the in the pain that it subjects him to, which makes him further sympathetic, uh, especially relative to the people who don't take pain seriously in this movie. I guess they're the villains because uh, they don't suffer. 
Uh, but you, I think you mentioned it as, as a villain problem, and I think that that's worth that's worth getting into. But that was my take on it anyway. Was that uh, that it's that he's a face, that he suffers, that we watch him in pain and we sympathize with him, that we respect him because he follows the rules, we root for him because he's good at what he does, and he he's good at what he does because he works hard and practices, and also because he's a familiar face that we know and love, and because he's got a cool suit and actually a really cool beard line. I would say is is actually very mm. characteristic of John Wick. Is, so <laughs> I would add the beard line. Yeah. Beard line near the end. Just to be, just to be clear, he follows the rules, the right set of rules, the ones that we care about. Um, you know, in terms of combat and craft and things like that, he disobeys, of course, the one of the main rules of this universe, which is don't kill other people in the sanctuary hotel, underworld hotel of the Continental. But I think to the point of the movie, that's all kind of BS. I think. I think that's the point of the movie, right? Is that is it the point of the movie? That's this is a really interesting question because I guess we should unpack what happens, right? Which is that. Because first of all, if we're talking about the last movie, we're talking about what drove Keanu Reeves to kill that guy in the Continental. And part of it was just extreme frustration and a lapse in judgment um, due to the bizarre, bizarre conflict that Keanu Reeves was dragged into and the use of the marker and the sort of co-opting of his agency and all that stuff. But in this movie, there's that there seems to be the notion that not only is John Wick being hunted, but the very social order represented by the high table and its kind of uh, federated organizations is is collapsing and falling apart. And John Wick is kind of challenged with, in any given moment, determining what is the set of rules that he's going to adhere to and why. Uh, you know, which, because they are not consistently applied. So the idea that one of the main characters is an adjudicator, that these are rules that require a priesthood that needs to kind of judge them, rather than rules that exist synthetically, sort of in the air, as they have in... Uh, previous movies is interesting um but yeah but this idea of like is there really a revolution against the high table in this movie is it all a trick what does it mean if it is all a trick uh, what does it mean about other resolution revolutions uh, what does it mean about him getting his finger chopped off these are all really i think difficult things to fully suss out uh i don't know matt what do you think the the uh, well, about which which part? The, the I'll, I'll start. I'll I start mean, the here. World, right? Well, I I have some thoughts about the the world building, but yeah, I mean, if you want to specify, go for it. So here's the question, right? In this movie, Keanu Reeves goes to see Braun from Game of Thrones, right? Yep. Keanu Reeves is being hunted all over the world, and he feels like his death is inevitable. And he goes, he wants to reconcile with the high table so that he's no longer excommunicado and everybody isn't trying to kill him. And he, so he goes in this quest in the desert. And in the desert, he pledges himself to the high table as their Baba Yaga again. And in doing it, so he pays to the like to the again. sort of Bedouin sheikh, right? Who is the yes. who is the apparently the one above the high table? Who is like the criminal lord of all the world? So it's a little Orientalist, yeah. To me. <laughs> I, I I was really disappointed that the real man above the high table wasn't like the old man sitting in the corner with the like the young guy in the elaborate robes being a ruse yeah. to try to trick him. That that seemed like the, the more effective move. But I think the idea based on what Braun says, is that the high table was created in sort of Assassin's Creed style out of the old order of assassins. And the Bedouins aren't so much the supreme criminals as they are the kind of torchbearers of the order of assassins. And they sort of they have an independent and superior authority to the high table, but they don't supervise or are involved in its everyday operations. They're they're like the uh, monks that that sort of hold the the truth. But I don't know. The movie doesn't really say you have to kind of figure out your own explanation for what exactly that guy is doing. Right. Um, but but the point being that he swears himself to the high table again 
through the Bedouins and then immediately betrays the high table like a half an hour later uh, after having his finger cut off. And the question is, what's what's up with that? Right. With his with him, with John Wick first choosing to have his finger cut off. Is that the right choice to make? And then choosing to betray the high table on Winston's behalf. Which, by the way, did everyone think Winston was the black guy because he's the name of the black Ghostbuster? Probably. I don't think it was just me. <laughs> but uh, uh, that, that's a name. Of, that's that name belongs to somebody, and that somebody is Ernie Hudson. So, uh, at any rate, the idea that Winston looks like Ian McShane kind of threw me. But at any rate, um, I don't, and I think that's more a tribute to Ernie Hudson owning that character uh, entirely than anything else. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's the question, right? Is like, what's going on with that reversal that John Wick goes through, which which then gets double crossed again by Winston revealing that he's not actually rebelling against the high table and was merely launching a counterattack against that were provoking them into uh, attack to see how difficult and costly the attack is in order to renegotiate his federated status uh, from a position of strength. Right? So the, the look, the the um, the character that you're thinking of that uh, the concierge character is uh, played by Lance Reddick is named Sharon. Uh, the, oh. the ferryman to the underworld, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who you know pulls you across on the boat, or I guess rows you across, maybe on pulls you across on the gondola or the punt, or or rows you across in the boat uh, across the river Styx into the uh, into the underworld. Um, also, uh, same actor who played uh, uh, Cedric Daniels on on the Wire. Mm-hmm. Um, Lance Lance Reddick, uh, so um, not not the only and and uh, who does I think a, a slightly more creditable job with the the mysterious vaguely European accent than does Braun, uh, Braun, yeah. <laughs> Braun of Lord Braun of the the Blackwater, um, but uh, yeah I mean look I I. To, to a certain extent, like the 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 direction I want to go, Pete. After after hearing what you have to say, is is like talking a little bit about the dynamics of this, the dynamics of this underworld, right? Because the most important thing to me is that it's controlled by uh, analog operators using like 1980s or even you know earlier style, uh, you know, green screen. Um, um, you know, CRT, cathode ray tube monitor, like uh, computer terminals, you know, uh, the sort that should have like a mainframe behind them and saving their stuff in, a, in, in their records in a sort of library of Alexandria uh, type giant book stack that spans many, many, many stories, though you get the sense that they're underground or something like that. And that they're all like extravagantly tattooed and pierced. I mean, these, these people look like baristas. <laughs> so, but you're, you're talking about like a bureaucracy that lends the whole thing legitimacy. Which it's, it so desperately needs, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bureaucracy, but it's not at all concerned with cost control or efficiency, right? Like you can't uh, you you can't hire that many art school graduates. You know, it's like it's hard at a certain point. Like <laughs> you know, the people who majored in digital sculpture, you know, have to uh, have to go out and do some digital sculpture. They can't all push pencils for your. Um, they can't all push pencils for your shadowy underworld organization. And like the 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 interesting thing about this 
this shadowy underworld is that it is associated everywhere with great luxury, right? Like, and, and the ultimate luxury, I suppose, is to be in a kind of non-digital or pre-digital age, mm-hmm. right? The, the, yeah. the ultimate luxury is to have a bevy of attractive 20-somethings, um, you know, kind of gender non-specific, heavily t- tattooed and, and pierced uh, 20-somethings, like, who are there to... Um, ferry your gold embossed folders around and like stamp them with giant red stamps. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever made a custom stamp? Is that something you've ever done in your life to go to the stationery store or whatever back when there were such a thing and get like a custom stamp made with a, you know, a big kind of wooden handle that's a, let's say a four inch circle that has, you know, a circular writing. It is so expensive to make <laughs> we did one, it for our wedding. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. To make one stamp, you know, and uh, and there were like a lot of stamps in this um in this thing pneumatic tubes right like running a running a leaderboard uh with like the betting odds on or the <laughs> sort of the deadpool right like running a uh uh running a, a board keeping track of all the open contracts out using um chalk rather than you know rather than some sort of digital display i mean this is this is sort of interesting and so there's there's this kind of nostalgic aspect to it where yes it's bad yes it's it's uh, uh corrupt or or maybe it's not corrupt because they're they're such um sticklers for the rules but it's you know maybe it's it's uh, uh assassins for hire maybe it's you know um uh antisocial right like maybe they're criminals maybe they're all kinds of bad things but like it also like it's pretty nice to see uh an office that runs like this you know, it's pretty nice to see uh, uh, a fancy hotel where everyone is polite to you when, you know, has your drink mixed and ready to go when you walk in the door. You know, it, it's it's very nice to see, um, I don't know, a, a, a tent in the in the middle of the desert with you know, beautiful rugs laid out and, uh, you know, tea and a, and a heavily, um, you know, heavily carved and like inlaid uh, uh, platform upon which you are supposed to sever your own finger. Like all, all of these things are, are quite nice, you know, and that, that's, that's the thing that the, the, the underworld isn't associated with um, poverty. The underworld isn't associated with like being outside of society. The underworld is associated with kind of society at its, at its most refined, uh, I guess. And so that, that like the, the, the story of this is like the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what the, what the action of the, the movie is. Cause I don't know who the, I don't know who the villain is, but like the, the story of this is a, a story of, you know, re- reasserting order after Theon Greyjoy, you know, uh, invaded Winterfell and, um, and killed Bran, which, which, uh, whether or not you knew it was the name of, uh, uh or, or, uh, no, he didn't kill Gran. He took Winterfell from Bran, uh, which was the name of John Wick's dog. Was uh, <laughs> so to carry what you're talking about forward a little bit, and maybe dig a little more into what's going on in the movie because the movie doesn't tell you. You have to kind of suss it out for yourself, I guess. Is it's interesting to contrast 
the world of luxury you're talking about with what happens to the Bowery King, the character played by Lawrence Fishburne, right. who's introduced in John Wick 2 and underutilized, I would say, in John Wick 2. Uh, this this idea that ne- mostly stunt casting so that Neo and Morpheus can have scenes together again. But here, the Bowery King is taking on a new connotation because when we meet him in John Wick 2, it's sort of it's a masquerade of people who are part of this luxurious order pretending to be homeless people, uh, right, to pretending to be poor, but having having let me rephrase that, putting on the sort of uh, superficial external trappings that are associated with poverty, but to them are associated with luxury and royalty, right? Like he has his sort of court that he keeps on his rooftop with his pigeons. And you get the sense that the Bowery King and his minions see this place with the same amount of seriousness that they would see Buckingham Palace, that this is a, a really place of, and this this is addressed in this movie, like, I'm a king. And then when the high table comes to depose him for helping John Wick, uh, we see the Bowery King go from being a simulacrum of a, an underground to being an underground. Uh, and and uh, it's sort of an underground underground because we already have an underground. But the Bowery King goes from being a, a sort of federated associated organization in good standing with the high table that has a whole bunch of secret resources and authority and that manipulates New York City behind the scenes through its access to tunnels in the subway and the homeless population, which it pays attention to and, no, pay attention to and nobody else does, to now the point where he's like the Rat King from Ninja Turtles sitting on an actual throne in the sewers or wherever, you know, in the in really underground and is raging at the world above him. And so it sets up this upper world, lower world within the underworld that had previously been kind of problematized because everybody was kind of part of the same society. But what we've seen is kind of cracks in this society as the elites in the society have become uncomfortable with the relative independence that the people uh, closer to the, you know, the individual contributors, as it were, and the frontline managers in the society have been taking upon themselves, I would say mostly within their within their rights with regards to how we understand the high table, that this is like a fraud situation. This is like a federal situation where the high table is trying to take away the rights of the nobility and and bring in more authority to itself. And this is in response to finding out the response basically to a regicide, right? A queen being killed, which it had previously thought within this construction was never going to happen. And uh, and so what John Wick three Parabellum is, is it's the high table diminishing itself by stooping to strike back at member organizations that are smaller than it is, and in doing so, revealing its weakness, and also in doing so, kind of shattering the equilibrium that's associated with it. I guess another another way of framing it in context of all this is that it's a vampire story. Uh, the, the John Wick Three huh. Parabellum is like a vampire story, like in the style of Vampire the Ma- Vampire the Masquerade, which I know I've talked about before. Uh, yeah, on, all those on all those podcasts. White Wolf games were were really great back in the nineties, you know. Yeah, totally, and I feel like they've been hugely influential because like, it seems like people who write these things must have played these games because these tropes keep coming back, right? And because in uh, you have the sub, right. You have the sabbat, and there's this conflict between vampires that's been that's introduced in Vampire the Masquerade, as far as I know. Maybe it's from other vampire literature as well, uh, right? And then which is which is which is between the Camarilla and the sabbat, 
And it seems to be manifest in John Wick 3 as well, where the Camarilla are the vampires who want to live in a sort of peaceful relationship with humans in a sort of stable hierarchical society. They're from the old world and everything about them is kind of secret societies and formal rules and yes, luxury and great luxury, uh, but machinations that always have to maintain the masquerade. The fact that the vampires are hiding among people. It's the sort of the whole fiction of aristocracy and particularly of kind of old world continental aristocracy as it extends through various sorts of commercial and colonial ties to the rest of the world. And it comes into contact with the Sabat, which is like the nouveau riche of the of the new world, right? Uh, who are want to take the full uh, the full extent of their power into their own hands? Who are less interested in uh, remaining hidden and are certainly less interested in kind of cloying shows of loyalty to the old world and want to be recognized as the sort of emergent power that they are. It's really a conflict between Italians and Italian Americans, and it's kind of modeled off of mafia movies, also, right? It's that the the vampire movies are modeled off for mafia movies because you've got the old family in Sicily and the new family in New York, and the new family in New York might have more guns, but the old family in Sicily has this mystique to them and this capability for true violence that maybe amazes and the, and the power that they have where they come from kind of amazes the New York people. So this is a story that's as much part of like the Chechens and Barry as it is John Wick three Parabellum, where you see this like, uh, you know, the 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 mission, the uh, the uh, adjudicator basically is like the Sicilian family member who's been sent to like take out the Don who hasn't been following the rules. Right. Um, and in that sense, John Wick is like a young gangster, but he's not even young. That's the thing is like John Wick's actual character. It's hard to peg down exactly where he is. He's like an individual made man, like an individual gangster of great repute in America who has ties on both sides and is trying to survive. But the standard gangster movie would have this ending with him in charge, <laughs> right? Like having established some sort of dominion himself as having gamed everybody else, which he does not do. And the standard vampire movie would have that, you know, the two sides of vampires destroying each other with him kind of trying to figure out some way of escaping and kind of, kind of trying to live the life that he wants to live. That would be the sort of, I guess, Anne Rice-ish sort of solution to this situation. Um, okay. So, so we got vampires, we got gangster movies, um, the gangster ecosystems. Um, I want to apply, try to apply international relations. Oh yeah, to please. This. Um, because okay, so we're. Oh, I think we're I'm going to do, like, do management after you're done with international. <laughs> nice. Okay, so then we're, we'll go we're, back to differential <laughs> equations. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking about like a rules based system that the elites have imposed that seems very stable, but like once you poke at it a little bit, like you realize the fragility of it, right? Um, and so what, what this makes me think a lot about is just, you know, how the current international order is being destabilized by the likes of, oh, I don't know, a, a, a Trump led United States, uh, North Korea, people who are like all like, you know, um, not following the pre-established norms uh, and agreements that have, uh, you know, managed the, the post-war Society, post World War II society, uh, and, and international economy uh, to prosperity for over the course of like, about seventy five years. Um, when things happen, like um, the United States starts to, uh, it, it's like all about like hitting, getting hit, and how hard you hit back, and in what ways are acceptable and not acceptable. Um, we are like going into new territory with like um, not allowing any United States business to do business with the Chinese electronics manufacturer Huawei, which is like. 
spiraling, which has the potential to spiral way out of control. Um, you have rogue actors like North Korea um, who are completely flouting the international order um, and a player like the United States that uh, is very erratically and inconsistently uh, following the rules and calling everything into question. So like to, this is not the strongest analog to the events in John Wick, but you have something where like um, a, a major shock to the system, you know, someone kills someone in the contents of the hotel room, in the contents of the hotel, um, calls into question all of the assumptions and has the potential to destabilize the whole damn thing. Eh? Eh? Any there there? Yeah, I think so. I think I see what you're saying. So you're saying, and you, you, you would say that Winston is a, a putinate, a putentate, right? Like that, that the guy running the Continental is is up is down with disrupting the order of the established system and with the result of there being this sort of like conflicting great laws of life and chaos is a ladder and he's able to little finger his way up into what seems like a somewhat stronger position by the time the movie is over than it was when the movie starts um or or you are you saying more generally that it's not necessarily a one-to-one relationship, but that the movie is communicating a general sort of anxiety that's characteristic of the international relations environment where groups that have had these sort of pre-existing diplomatic relationships, right? Take it outside the context of being a business, take it outside the context of being like a crime organization or like a vampire brotherhood. And, and it's like they have diplomatic relationships with each other. And people have kind of recognized that the defection in the prisoner's dilemma that had previously been declined on in order to preserve the mutually beneficial relationships through these diplomatic ties, people have finally realized, like, you know what? I'm going to defect. I'm going to yeah, take advantage of my opportunity to I, edge a little bit more out of the system for myself and as a result, threaten the entire system. Yeah, I, I think in more of the latter. And yes, yeah. Pete, it is time for some game theory. <laughs> it's all <laughs> effect, 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 baby. Um, because everyone is out to get each other. I mean, it's a freaking world of assassins, right? They just like at the uh, at the right opportunity, um, they will turn on each other because they can profit from it. Well, right. I mean, but what what the world of assassins does in in game theoretical terms, right, is create reputational effects that have uh, some teeth. You know, like if 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 you're an assassin and everyone you deal with in the course of doing your uh, forgive me your job, right, you kill. Um, there are no reputational effects. And so you can break your word with impunity because no one's going to hold you to account later or no one's going to decline to do business with you next time. Like, I decline to be murdered by you next time because uh, <laughs> you, 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 but, but by creating kind of the high table, by creating a, a system of rules, a system of rules which makes us, you know, better than the animals, right? The, he, um, the, this world manages to kind of create a, a you know, at least within the of of professional assassins in this organization or it's it's not even an organization it's it's an ecosystem you know and uh within this this um you know tabula uh i, I don't even I'm, I'm not even gonna try it. the within this ecosystem the um uh the the reputational effects can can sort of hold but i want to go i want to go uh in a slightly different direction and and propose that this is what happens uh when when you manage an organization this is what happens when in your career progression chart uh you don't have a pr- practitioner track uh as well as a management track 
right? So I work in software development, right? And, and in technology organizations, uh, healthy ones, there are generally two ways you can kind of climb the ladder and make a lot of money, uh, you know, at, the, at least in, in software development, right? Like the, that you can kind of get to the top of that, uh, that food chain. One, one is by becoming a manager and becoming a, you know, an executive. Um, the other, though, is like you actually want to have a way for skilled engineers to remain skilled engineers, but to become, um, you know, but but to uh, climb the ladder, right? You don't you don't want to keep them sort of entry level or individual contributor uh, type jobs forever um, because you're you're sort of wasting someone's skill. Right now, uh, John, uh, my mother worked for Boeing for 30 years and she, um, the, she would tell me sometimes about the goings on in Boeing. And apparently like, uh, if you were going for like manager, director, vice president, that was one track. But if you were a scientist say, and you had no interest in like checking people's timesheets or anything like that, you just wanted to do science, uh, you know, just high, a little higher up the value chain. Um, you could become, uh, ultimately I think the, the highest version of this was, was, uh, called a technical fellow. Right, and you could become a a, a technical fellow, uh, and and you would have um, influence in the organization. Your contributions would be respected. There was you know prestige and you know status accorded to this uh, to this designation. It was hard to get, um, and it you know it it recognized that you were really 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 good at doing the thing and had no no interest in like director title or or VP title. Now John Wick. Uh, has no interest in becoming management, though I don't know. They, maybe they were setting something up at the end of of this film, where where he and Lawrence Fishburne take the take the whole thing over in uh, uh, John Wick Chapter Four, post bellum ergo propter bellum. But the the uh, the the proper place for him as a, as a uh, the proper place for him in that organization was as a technical fellow, as a you know. Um, senior assassin, you know, senior assassin, uh, uh, engineer, right. And that, um, the, uh, the fact that that, that organization couldn't, um, has, has to maintain its food chain, you know, has to kind of maintain its, uh, uh, pyramid structure such that there can be no centers of power or influence outside of, of management, I think shows the, uh, a certain kind of weakness in, in the organization, a certain kind of lack of imagination in, uh, in the managers and, uh, you know, a, a sort of signs of an, signs of an unhealthy an unhealthy workplace and you know as as uh, every post on linkedin tells me people people don't quit jobs people quit toxic workplaces <laughs> so you're saying that that john wick left because his technical skill the way that the system was set up didn't engage his technical skilling sort of credibility as a senior member of the organization because it insisted that your seniority was associated with your direct reports. Yeah, exactly. It was and, like, yeah. it was like, apparently headcount is, is the way to, uh, <laughs> the way to determine <laughs> status in that, in that org. And, uh, you know, the, the, really, they need to, to read a lot of, uh, 
uh, management books about leading with influence and not with uh, not with authority per and, se. And once they start reading those management books, they might realize they need to upgrade their technology system and uh, replace the the heavy custom rubber stamps. Yeah, that's exactly. expensive. Especially <laughs> they're just going to ruin everything. <laughs> What's the point? It does make sense now why they would in that context why they would follow. Or why they would so revere this, like, random dude in the desert. Because why does it matter if he doesn't do anything useful if he's on top of the org chart? Right, exactly. Like, you're on top of the org chart. You're on top of the org chart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, all of those guys, those guys who are sitting in a tent with him are equal in the org chart with the most with the great leaders of the mightiest crime syndicates in the in Europe and Asia, right? Like and the United States. Yeah. Right. Like these are these are like, but all they do is sit in a tent with the random dude with the white hat. Right. Like that's but because they're because they're, you know, they're one down from the big the big kahuna, they are co equal with the high table itself, which is pretty funny. Um, yeah, I like the way you're thinking about it, that this is a sort of anti-hierarchy movie, that John Wick is a uh, gangster, is a fantasy gangster for the tech age because he represents the failure of the old world to recognize the ability of individuals to leverage technology to accomplish things on par with much larger organizations in the past. Yeah, I mean, that makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. He's he's uh, he's a disruptor. <laughs> <laughs> So, so speaking of disruptor, do, is this now where we want to talk about uh, good old um, Mark Dacascos? Yes. That, uh, uh, yeah. Ale, ale, or, or in other words, Ale Cuisine. <laughs> right, because well, there's a give there's a the background. There's a fantastic. Yeah. Well, Mark Dacascos is the is a uh, Hawaiian-born um, American actor who's done a lot of martial arts stuff uh, and also played the. Uh, played the chairman in the uh, U.S. version of Iron Chef, Iron Chef America, and so um, you know, and and by the way, played played him for like what, like ten years or or something. That that series went on forever, maybe maybe even more than that. Um, and uh, so, to 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 my mind, he's most recognizable from that. Though he has a long and you know, um, at times distinguished filmography. I should say, I'm sorry. At times distinguished is is snobby. Um, the kind of stuff that he does, where where his skills are, um, he gets shunted into genre film, which uh, is not associated with with prestige. And I, I feel like actually this is an appropriate movie for him to play a major part in because this is, uh, I think sometimes a movie about upending, um, upending those sorts of, those sorts of hierarchies. But um, yeah, it, but like w- what he plays in, in this movie makes no sense to me. Right. And so I feel like I can't, I can neither, uh, I, I, I bury or praise, um, you know, the chairman here for uh, for his work in this film because he doesn't he doesn't really have anything worthwhile to do. He's uh, he's he's sort of unhinged, but he's unhinged in such a silly way 
that it, it was very hard for me to take seriously, right? Like when he starts speaking Japanese and just all of a sudden, though, though he speaks unaccented English, all of a sudden when he starts saying, uh, you know, John Huiku, right? Like that, that stuff, is that, what, it, what is being... What is being done there? Like, and and uh, though though uh, introducing him as the chef at a you know four seat sushi bar, um, a, a very high end sushi bar was uh, quite wonderful given his his role as the chairman on, hmm. on yeah. Iron Chef America. It, it's it's this very bizarre alienating and confounding package. Uh, that he brings to the table, right? And at a superficial, superficial level, he's there for his martial arts ability and to add the Japanese element, the samurai swords, and that kind of stuff, right? But um, he he doesn't says these incredibly bizarre things, as well as his henchmen, right? Um, I'm going to call out a few specific things here that are part of the um, the increasingly outlandish things that happen in this movie, even for this type of movie. Like it just it it's really bonkers. It's 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 very alienating, right? So like when they're in the hotel at a sort of an impasse or like stuck awkwardly sitting next to each other and then um uh samurai guy comes out and says like i'm a huge i'm a huge fan of yours like all fanboy gushes over him um and then like uh, like a cartoon villain tells his henchman to save him for me only i can kill him uh and his villains also like say that it's such an honor to fight you and also pull their punches and, and miss opportunities to kill him um and this kind of continues on you know in, in a very cartoonish kind of way um I, let me add one other thing that's not uh, uh, specific to this character, right? To the, because the thing that happens at the very end um, when Winston betrays John Wick and, and shoots him, like he careens off of a bunch of different sides of the building and still manages to survive to survive that. Like it just, like takes everything up to a Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon level, which uh, by that point is of a piece with the, the, the bonkers things that are coming out of Sushi Guy's uh, uh, mouth. Okay, so, um, so, so I, wait, stick a pin in, in Zero for a second. Do you think do you think Winston knew that he was going to survive, or was he surprised that that he did? Did was that an authentic he, attempt to kill him? It was not an authentic attempt to kill him because it's connected to what we saw earlier in the movie, where Keanu Reeves knew exactly where to shoot the doctor to allow him to survive, but you know, it looked like uh, you know it was, someone attempted to kill him. Yeah. Okay. So th- that part makes pretty decent uh, sense to me. I- I'm thinking more just like of like the uh, it's it's like in a comedy movie where they throw a, a stuffed a straw stuffed man off of a roof and you just see it like Karina bounce around everywhere. Um, and it, it's it's like that level of of cartoonishness, which uh, combined with everything I just described earlier, really highlights uh, the fact that like all this is bonkers, all this is silly. Um, don't take this too seriously. Which that's all fine and good. It's doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the tone of the movie. So I'm not really sure how this is supposed to serve a broader artistic project of this movie. It was alienating and confounding. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So this, this was my thinking about it. So it seemed because this is something that gets said about superhero movies a bit. So I felt like, yeah, like the chairman in this movie is a superhero movie villain in a, a movie that isn't a superhero movie. And that, that is part of the joke with the idea being that uh, if you really want to sit down and do a formulaic superhero origin story, you introduce a character who's a dark mirror to the hero 
and has sort of similar powers to the hero, but uses them in the wrong way or has the wrong kind of attitude about things. And and this is like, you know, the Iron Monger in, in Iron Man. This is like Loki and Thor, right? That or, or the the big monster in Thor, you could say, too. Uh, the Red Skull in Captain America. Uh, you know, and it goes on and on. The Green Goblin. Oh, oh there's Spider-Man. even that line, that cliche line. Like, we're not so different, you and me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. the superhero movies, which he says pretty much verbatim in this movie, in the straight face. Right. But it's meant and, as a joke. And he's, and yeah, it's meant as a joke. And not only that, but he's like, a, he's a John Wick fan, which is one of the weird twists that the movie takes, is that like, this guy is a John Wick fan, and he's been imitating John Wick sort of in a sort of Adam West Batman style vibe, right? Like, uh, oh, it's the great big Wick, or, or even, it's just, it seems like he's, he has fetishized his, his quote-unquote enemy. And I guess if I were to really try to reconcile this if i were to try to do the lifting for the movie and explain how it all fits together i would suggest that the fact that the high table dispatches a superhero villain against john wick and it ends up not only not working but never even really being a factor that stops that even slows him down uh is an indication that the high table's understanding of the situation is no longer adequate that 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 uh, the high table thinks that John Wick is like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, but John Wick is really right. Like uh, what? I guess Michael Corleone? No. Um, I mean, what is like Emma Watson in the circle with, with, a, <laughs> with a vintage with a vintage uh, a vintage pistol? Maybe I don't know. But then, like John Wick is a different sort of thing. Well, John Wick is is kind of this force of nature. He's not really this. Uh, I mean, I said he's virtuosic more than more than gifted, but John Wick is this boogeyman and he's this sort of monster. Uh, But it isn't even like, oh, you're the monster and I'm the worst monster or you're the monster and I'm the hero, like Abomination and Ed Norton, the Hulk or whatever. It's um, but it's that like they 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 don't see that John Wick is on a sort of old timey hero's journey. That might be the better way to to suggest it is that is John Wick more of a kind of classical hero than a modern hero in the sense that he's invested in like avenging the deaths of loved ones, traveling to the underworld and kind of giving a piece of himself to achieve knowledge, right? Uh, Coming back into the real world and getting involved in these sorts of like political feuds among the gods, as it were, but but John Wick's life is on the line in a way that their lives isn't. And so John Wick's life means more. And so the idea that John Wick is a superhero who needs like a nemesis is absurd because this is about John Wick kind of facing off against this vast, uncaring world that has that he has to kind of navigate. Uh, and it's not really about whether, you know, he can beat, you know, um, gosh, what would be a good example? Like like. Uh, the other Venom symbiote, right? Like uh, that they send, and that's what makes the joke. The, the uh, other thing that makes it a joke is like he's like a video game boss, yeah. Right, and in particular towards the end where he is, John Wick is ascending levels up the Continental to the highest thing, and then you can see the villain, um, you know, kind of uh, observing the scene from below and just kind of waiting first turn oh um, yeah the, the by other, the way, the other... bad, bad production design that that was that was an inappropriate choice for the kind of inner sanctum of the continental the real inner sanctum of the continental is the vault where winston waits yeah. you know smoking yeah. a cigar and swirling brandy around in a snifter for the the violence to be done on his behalf outside yeah it's like it's like some kind of odd misreading of the you guys have seen the raid 
I think it's like an Indonesian action movie um, that's all about like yeah. ascending up a tower through a stairwell, yeah. something like that. Um, and that's great, but you should watch that. Um, yeah, yeah, but I want to go back to the video game piece there because there's another thing uh, going on, which is at the end, the uh, the table sends a bunch of super armored uh, tactical soldiers to take yeah, out a SWAT Donald. team. A SWAT team, yeah, but they're uh, either they're you're armored. SWAT or you're not, Mark. They're armored to the- <laughs> there. You go, Pete. I guess I'm not. Um, they they're armored to the point where they take multiple hits of armor piercing bullets in order to kill, and finally, especially like just like straight up headshots, like into the helmet or into like the the small seam of the helmet. Um, that was very video gamey to me. Um, you know, like a, a, a sort of gun combat rules that you really don't often see depicted on screen um and that all added to like the the swirling pot of alienation and and by the way also was like kind of fatiguing at that point especially in that part of there's like the, the unrelenting pounding gunfire and headshots and 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 brain mists you know were, you, mark you know what i found myself thinking at that point was uh Gosh, I wonder if they modulate the volume of the gunshot sound effects that they use so that you're not so blown out by the end that mm-hmm. nothing seems loud anymore. Yeah. Because the guns sort of get bigger and bigger throughout the course of this, uh, you know, throughout the course of this thing uh, to the point where it's, you know, shotguns at the end with, you know, armor per- piercing shells, right? And that's like slugs, but slugs, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that uh that sh- that you know the the that's the biggest boom right of the uh, uh of the whole movie and it it seemed very loud and like the thought i was having as i was watching this movie is like i wonder how the tactically as it were they deal with this challenge in sound design because there's been a lot of boom 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 you know uh, in uh in this movie I felt like the sound design of this movie was amazing. I, I don't. I I would even answer the question with like yes, 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 yes. Like yeah. the the initial gunfight in the lobby of the Continental. I felt like I was feeling John Wick's gunshots in the base, and there was this sort of heartbeat to them, and then the pitter patter of the tables gunshots riding over it. It just was. I thought it was beautifully done. I thought that they were they were doing what you're talking about. They were very precisely everything about. John Wick movies, another reason we root for them, and to go back, I guess I talked about linear equations, but uh, linear, what I, what I mean, or differential equations, uh, or whatever, is that everything about John Wick is, is mathematically beautiful and geometrically beautiful. The tumbling, the striking, that there's these, these circles and straight lines. Like the, the classic John Wick move is a circle followed by a straight line, right? Which is like crossing somebody out, crossing somebody out. Uh, and, and there's this wonderful orientation of all of the elements of an action movie that feels more at home in, say, a kung fu movie, where the elements are non-negotiable, uh, and as such, the um, the the artistic expression of the director is related to how they uh, manipulate the elements. Um, but but to, to to add to what you were just saying before about the alienation, there was one line in the movie that maybe ties a lot of this up, and I wonder if you guys noticed this too. I think that it's Mark Dacascos, aka the uh, the teacher from Only the Strong, who says this line. Which is like, is this the dog, right? Like somebody meets so John Wick's is this, dog. Is this the dog? Yeah. Right. And, and so like, of course, as you know from the movies, it can't be the dog because the dog is dead. Right? Yeah. So like the people who have heard John Wick's story 
don't know who John Wick really is. They don't even remember his story right. He can't be traveling around with the dog that Theon Greyjoy killed. This has to be a different dog. Yeah. Anybody who actually knew John Wick would know that. And that in here, what this means is that there is a way in which the experience of this character and the story associated with him are being torn apart from each other. Yeah. And maybe that's also part of why this idea, what is trying to be communicated through this idea of an anti-John Wick, which is like the anti-John Wick is set up against the idea of John Wick, not the reality of John Wick, not his own experience of himself or the experience that others have when he's the last thing that they ever see. Right. Like they all are surprised when they encounter real John Wick. He's so much different than they thought he was going to be. Um, oh, he's slow. Oh, wow. Like he's really impressive. He's right? old. Yeah. He's been retired for four years. Well, yeah. Still doing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. And we even have Halle Berry setting up the new John Wick myth with Halle Berry having a sort of type anti-type with her own dog that gets shot by Braun that he she then wreaks vengeance for. Right. Which is like, you know. You know, the one I co- comes before, you know, I come before the one I'm not fit to tie her sandals. Right. It's like she reenacts the events of the first John Wick movie with Braun and this John Wick movie. Although, were you guys confused as to whether that dog was dead or not? I was the dog. Confused. The dog wasn't dead. The dog had a, a uh, Kevlar, you know, doggy coat on. <laughs> <laughs> had a, a had bulletproof a, thunder vest. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, with yeah, yeah, I was confused. Yeah, the the, the tracking of the dog slash dogs got a little bit muddy uh, in, in that sequence because everything was dark. Huh. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, what what did you think of Halle Berry in in Casablanca? You know, do doing there. I mean, a huge missed opportunity not to dunk someone into the right, especially in a movie uh, franchise that has had both Theon Greyjoy and Braun in it. Not to uh, crown somebody with molten gold was a, a huge missed opportunity. Right? That's really like <laughs> like uh, you know Chekhov's Chekhov's vat of of molten gold um, and the 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 molten metal never splashed um but i don't know what what did you think of this uh this interlude in the the film the sort of beginning of the second act of the film well i thought that it was underutilized later in the movie i thought we were setting up that john wick was going to have a companion that you know that somebody he was going to be with a counterpart uh but i guess that wasn't going to happen and it wasn't really explained why it wasn't going to happen she was just in a little bit of the movie and then she left So I liked it and I thought it was cool because it reintroduced John Wick to the idea of not being totally alone, which I think is important for him to re-socialize into the world of living people. Uh, But and this idea of like who really does ever socialize with John Wick seems to be something that this movie asks over and over again. And we get an answer here where it's like this one person socialized with John Wick and it went kind of okay. Uh, I don't know, Mark, what did you think? Oh, I had an issue with it uh, because the broader theme of the movie was about action and consequence. Um, and that kind of how it ties the whole social order together. And we don't see the consequences fully play out, right? We have yet another instance of one of these assassins breaking these cardinal rules of you know not killing people on the on grounds of a continental. And best I can tell, they, they killed like a hundred people in a continental hotel, including its proprietor, its main its main owner. Um, and uh, that should have had de- devastating consequences. And we don't hear anything at all about that later on in the movie it just yeah. really felt shoehorned in um and just an opportunity for Halle berry to do her thing and she was great and it don't get me wrong it just uh felt kind of dropped in and disconnected 
Yeah. What do you think, Matt? I don't know. It was no swordfish. <laughs> hey, you know what happens to an underground uh, runner of a gold coin mint who gets struck by lightning? What? Same thing as everything else. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but it's not. But but he doesn't get dunked in his. Uh, he doesn't get dunked in his own thing. I mean, like for for such a you know mellow melodramatic. Um, such a melodramatic uh, uh, thing. It's, it's, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess there was a, a sense in which there was, there was a reversal on Casablanca where it's a, a woman who's the proprietor of a fancy hotel um, or a, you know, fancy, fancy joint. She's the, she's the, the sort of Ian McShane um, counterpart right analog in uh in casablanca isn't she oh you bring up a good point so maybe there was all the killing did not happen on the grounds of, of a continental no but still you know that guy you know braun braun of the blackwater is a is a lord he's a made guy or whatever like there should be maybe there's an adjudicator coming coming to her um uh, you know next but the uh uh, yeah, but the the it's a it's a reversal of that she's she's running the hotel and then of all the the gin joints in all the the places of all the world she has to that he has to walk into hers, um, you know, da, 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 da. and that's uh, a, I don't know sort of an sort of an interesting thing and I guess I guess they go fight fascism together in a manner of speaking. Um, but the the problems that uh, two people don't amount to a hill of beans, um, in in this crazy mixed up world, or a pile it's, it's, of it's bullets, a, or, or I was I was thinking more of a handful of dog kibble. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. There it is. Um, yeah, but but it was like it's inter- You know, it's interesting. John John Wick married no children. I mean, I, I who knows whether what their plan for family was, but like uh, his his wife seems to have died before uh, they ever managed to um, d- to realize whatever plans there there might have been. But you know, Halle Berry has some backstory, and and by the way, in, in in a movie like this, you want as little backstory as possible. In fact, like learning that, you know, John Wick trained with Angelica Houston, right? Like was, uh, frankly, a disappointment to me. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. He's a force of nature. He doesn't, he doesn't have a psychology. He doesn't have a, a backstory. Well, he can have a psychology. Um, but, you know, uh, that, that doesn't mean like a monologue about like when I was coming from Belarus and your ballet school helped me, you know, find myself as an immigrant in this, in New York, like that, you know, don't, don't, n- none of that, please. Um, just, just cheapens it. Halle Berry, uh, though, had a daughter. John Wick did something to protect her because Halle Berry lived a life of crime and it made her, her put her daughter at risk. She doesn't know where the daughter is. Uh, she doesn't want to know where the daughter is. Like, uh, th- this was good. It was, it was nonspecific and, and you only had a tiny little bit of like, every day I wake up and I want to find out where my daughter is and I have to kill that part of myself every day. Like, it, it was, uh, I, for whatever reason, I found it tolerable, whereas the other oh, stuff was and, just, yeah. And that's also connected to uh, the the scene in the desert where the the head honcho guy asked John Wick, like, really, what are you living for? 
why are you still alive? Why, 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 why don't you just go and die <laughs> essentially? Um, and the answer is, is not really satisfying. I don't think because, or at least coming out of there, it's, um, well, you continue to live in order to kill you live for death essentially. Um, but clearly he's striving for something more than that. Or he, uh, my sense, uh, to have more satisfaction for this character is that there ought to be more than that. And we don't get there really because at the end of it, his body is broken and he's there with, um, you know, back together with Morpheus and they're super pissed and they're going to, you know, kill a bunch of people from there. Um, we still don't, I don't think have an answer for what he's living for. Um, and I don't really frankly feel like the movie is interested in answering that question. I will say my favorite little detail from meeting Angelica, Angelica Houston and finding out John Wick's real name, which is Jardani, right, is that there's so many people who, in patronizing John Wick over the course of these movies, call him Jonathan, as if John is short for Jonathan, when it is in fact short for Jardani, but they don't even know. And I think this matches up with kind of the problem that you're identifying, Mark, which is that we don't even really know who John Wick is. And, and, and the answer is not that he's Jardani. Because he's clearly not. He's clearly moved on and transformed since he, like, immigrated from Belarus or whatever. Yeah, he forgot all those ballet moves. Yeah, yeah, ago. exactly, exactly. All that except, not, except, except not, though. Sorry, that's, that, yeah. that's not the right. That's the true, right. that's true. It makes sense that he's a ballerina and yeah, a wrestler. Yeah, it does. I mean, it makes sense that he does both of those things. But maybe that's the challenge of the next movie is that, okay, what's John Wick really going to be about? What's, what's, and that's the sort of Rooster Cogburn question, right? Like, what's the last thing you're going to do as a kind of aging cowboy, right? Because that's the other kind of movie that John Wick movies are, is they're cowboy movies, because it's about a man and his dog and his car, and they all get stolen from him, and he's got to figure out, you know. So it's a country song movie, right? It's a cowboy movie. But also because there is rule, there are rules in the world, but the rules get kind of suspended, and he has to kind of, like, enact the rules at the tip, at the muzzle of a gun, right? Like, there's an aspect of cowboy that runs through John John Wick. Did, he did take his horse and rode it down the old town road. Until <laughs> <laughs> he could not ride it anymore. Yeah. I was wondering if we would uh I was wondering if we we would uh really get an hour on this movie, but I feel like we could go on, but that's as good a place uh to leave it as as any. So uh questions about the adjudicator, questions about really the villain, the the larger villain problem which was that there was no single person to hate uh in this movie the way the way that there was uh in in the first two movies. Um and you know, uh the the uh, sort of, I feel like there are also s- certain like sociological um, implications, maybe because his the, his enemy is is too complex, really, to be named specifically. There's a sort of postmodern sense in which like there's no. Um, it's a system of systems, and like, how do you fight that? You know, and that's. Um, or like by the time you have a system you've already lost the uh you've already lost the fight against the system the system of systems these are all left as exercises to the readers in uh, to the listeners in our um uh comments you can go to overthinkingit.com hit the uh hit the button for the show notes for this episode and leave a comment there and we will talk about all of those things and more with you thanks very much for listening to the overthinking it podcast thanks pete and mark for podcasting uh, with me about John Wick. We'll be back. Uh, now. Oh, thank you also to our members. We are uh, dropping a... Uh, we're dropping a... Uh 
question of the week for um, uh, for this week. So uh, look for that if you are a member in the members area. Uh, the members of Overthinking It are those those. It's like a like a guild of assassins, really. And uh, as dues, they they give us five bucks a month, and and they get the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing that uh, they are living under the table, and uh, we get five bucks a month, and and also some uh, extra podcasts, including the uh, occasional weekly question of the week episodes this week on uh, on movie trailers that we've seen uh, recently and that we like just gonna put this out there the king and the queen are coming to downton all right we'll be back with more overthinking it podcast next week till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. So that's cool that you give the gold coin to Charon to get into the Continental Hotel. That had never occurred to me before. That's that's really clever. I like that. Do you think they have an ice machine where if you, you drink from it, you lose all your memories? Yep. like they have a coke machine that's just fire (laughs) how deep does this greek underworld metaphor go